I will be reading John 7, 37-39. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will throw, flow from within them. By this time he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. All right, you can be seated, and uh, we'll dismiss our kids to Children's Church. Speaking of uh, living water, could you get me some, please? <laughs> Realize I didn't have anything but coffee all morning long. We're in John 7, as we talk about God with us. God with us when we're thirsty. Anybody thirsty? Anybody else want to drink a water? Um, as I was looking through uh, this chapter, we're definitely not going to read all of it. Um, I would encourage you to. But just right out of the box, I wanted to um, look at verse 16. On a, on a personal note, I wanted to look at verse 16 uh, to 18. Thank you very much. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth, and there's nothing false about him. And I just thought as I read that, I want to be that guy. I want to work for the honor of the one who sent me. And I'm not the Christ, but I'm up here on assignment to give you something of truth that came from above and not from my own thinking or my own mouth. And to do that, we need, we need a, a healthy dose of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray together. God, as we come to your word, um, we'd ask that that living word um, that living and active, that sharper than any two-edged sword word would pierce to the, to the very depths of our soul, the places we don't even know really exist until we pay attention to, to who you are and, and what you're doing in us and, and how it is that you would have us be more like you. So um, help me to, uh, to be a one who glorifies you only and that we can test this to see if it's from you by putting it into practice and obeying you and seeing how it all works out. Give us that courage and that discernment in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. How many of you, when you were younger, made it a habit to go to uh, picnics with your family? Okay. I mean, I don't know how often it happened. I remember a lot of times going out to the park, um, going to uh, some kind of reservoir. There was a, a playground. Um, and we had uh, family reunions. My, my dad's uh, brother and uh, my grandmother and a few cousins, I guess, would go out and we would just have these family reunions, these picnic things. Um, 
I'm not sure what happened. I'm not sure if it's my family or do your family still do this because it just doesn't, it doesn't seem like a lot of t- people do this any, a lot anymore. You know what I mean? So, um, but when I was a kid, picnics were fun, but I didn't get a lot to eat. Now, don't get me wrong. There was food everywhere, but I didn't like any of it. <laughs> I mean, a hot dog was a hot dog, and that's about all that I really had to my disposal because you... You put anything in front of me that has the word salad behind it, I won't eat it. I mean, you name it. Potato salad, macaroni salad, ham salad. Try me. Pasta salad, nope, not going to do it. Tossed salad, that I will do. What? Ask me what kind of, kind of dressing I want on that. None. I don't want any. Just give it to me with some salt. I'm a rabbit. That's the only thing that I'll, that I'll do. And I didn't even like baked beans as a kid. Now, I know, it's sad. But there was nothing else except hot dogs for me. And I was only allowed to have one. I don't know. My mom was that way. I don't Anyway. Um, but baked beans. You think a kid would like baked beans. You think a kid would like beans and weenies, you know? I would pick the weenies out and, you know, not having it. And so I would, at these picnics, I would run around and be starving. By the time I got home, I wanted something more to eat. It took me a few years, into my teen years actually, before I would try any kind of baked beans, pork and beans, anything like I still won't eat potato salad. I still won't eat coleslaw. Don't get that in front of me. Um, But the hardest thing to do for a kid or even an adult when they have decided they don't like something is to try it again. And I figured out when, um, when, my, well, when my parents split, um, I stayed with my dad. My sister and I stayed with my dad. And my dad, my dad knew how to cook a few things. And one of the things he loved doing was a big pot of baked beans. Only he would take out the spice rack and dump it all in. And it wasn't the same way twice. His favorite was liquid smoke. Ever had a bottle of liquid smoke? I mean, it sounds horrible. But you pour some of that in there, you put some pepper, you put some cayenne, you do some things with it, and it's amazing. I love baked beans um, now. But a can, of, a can of Campbell's or pork and beans? No, you've got to dump the spice rack into it. The other thing that I've, that I've discovered, that once you like a certain food, let's just say you start out by liking it, But then when you have a bad experience with one, you never want to go back. Or say you love Subway sandwiches, and then you get the flu, and you get rid of that Subway sandwich. You don't want Subway anymore, do you? It's just, like, gross. Or if you really like something like, I don't know, broccoli, and then you get pregnant, and the smell of broccoli makes you want to gag every time you smell broccoli. You don't want broccoli after you've had that baby, do you? Um, It's just one of those things where if you like something and then all of a sudden it goes bad for you, not only do you mourn the loss of it, you love ice cream, but then you become lactose intolerant. Can't have it anymore. It's one of those things where it's hard getting reacquainted with a food after liking it and then something ruins it. You've heard the phrase, I put a bad taste in my mouth, right? How often is it taking literally the bad taste in my mouth? 
No, really what that means is you've had a bad experience. It left something on you that you're not so sure about anymore. And it, to have that reintroduced, sorry, I'm not so sure I want to do that again. Why does this make sense? Why does that phrase make sense? Because we eat all the time, right? We have appetites that are never fully and finally satisfied. We crave all kinds of things besides food and drink. We crave to be loved. We crave approval. We crave acceptance. We, pra- we crave comfort and security and rest. Oh, anybody want a nap this afternoon? We crave intimacy. We crave fulfillment. We crave freedom. There's all kinds of things, good things, things we were designed to enjoy in proper amounts and parameters that we crave and we want more of. These are natural and normal appetites to have. The problem comes when we try to satisfy those appetites by destructive means, through toxic people, through substances rather than relationships, through money rather than meaning. We try to satisfy these deep desires in our heart the things that only leave us wanting more and more and more. The people we rely on that we think can give us these things fail us. We fail them and we don't, we we come away with this bad taste in our mouth. Ultimately, even your spouse can't give you what you were designed to need. The problem comes when we crave good things from less than adequate or outright bad sources. And then we grow to believe that the good things we wanted aren't worth having. Catch that because this is important. The bad thing comes when the stuff that we should be craving, the good things that God designed us to take in, we get those from inadequate or insufficient sources and then we, we decide that thing that we wanted isn't good for us. We don't need that. We don't want that. It's kind of like saying after 50 years of hungering for the Chiefs to get a Super Bowl win again, we say, who needs the Super Bowl? I mean, there's nothing wrong with the Super Bowl, but it's like sour grapes, you know? It's that continual disappointment. And it's, that's, a, that's kind of a silly ridiculous example but people do that all the time with other things don't we think about losing weight i have lost probably i don't know 200 pounds in my lifetime this is the same 10 pounds over and over again you know i've I've just lost all that again and again and again and eventually it's like why 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 even bother um How about going to the doctor? I don't want to go to the doctor. Why? Because I tried it once. It didn't work. I'm I'm still, you know, going to school. Kids. Didn't work for me. I didn't like it. I don't care for it. I, you know, it's not school that's a problem. It's us. Learning anything new. You fill in the blank foreign language, technology, whatever. I don't want to do that. Why not? Because I tried it before. 
I don't want to change that. I don't like change. Typically, the change is okay. It's the process getting there that we don't like. Marriage. Ouch. Oh, I tried that. I'm trying that. Must be something wrong with marriage because it's not wrong with me. I'm fine. You know, there's that idea that it's not, the, the good thing out there is the problem, not how I'm trying to get that thing fulfilled. That's the mistake that we make. You've tried it once, you tried it twice, you tried it a few times, it gets bad to worse again and again. Whatever it is that you wanted, however it is that you tried to get that thing or have that fulfillment, you tried to feed that appetite with a defective and inadequate source. And then you have this friend that says, well, if you, have you tried this? Have you tried that medicine? Have you had that supplement? Did you try that doctor? Did you go to that chiropractor? Have you tried this diet? Have you been to this job? Have you tried that website? Have you gone to this program? Have you tried that church over there? What about that book? Have you read that book? And they're trying to tell you things that worked for them, maybe were a positive experience for them, and they're begging you, just try it one more time. Do it my way. And see what happens. And I wonder, and we think we've got it all figured out. We, we're done trying. And we're kind of jaded, cynical about all of this stuff. And then we come to Jesus. And the, Jesus came to the people. The people were looking at Jesus. And in John chapter 7, verse 25... John 7, 25, at some point, here Jesus is now in the temple. He's teaching. And some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? There's a price on his head. Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Christ? Now listen to their observation. But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Okay, so they're both mistaken and misguided because they don't even agree with each other on this. Skip ahead to verse 41 toward the end of our section here. So we got people go looking at Jesus thinking, well, he might be okay, but he can't be the Christ because we know where he's from. Other group of people, verse 41, others said, he's the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived, and the people were divided? Well, they're more informed. They're more biblically literate. Yes, the, the Messiah, the Christ is from Bethlehem. He is from David's line and David's family. But notice, you don't, see Jesus going, hey, I was born there. You don't hear that. He's not making the case for himself. He's not answering their questions or defending himself. All he does is give multiple invitations. We've already been to John 4, but remember when he said to the woman at the well, if you only knew the gift 
God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. In verse 13 of chapter 4, Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus knows where his fulfillment comes from. He knows where his purpose is and how to get it done. And he says to his disciples later on in verse 34, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. So it seems fitting that Jesus offers people the very thing that gives him the most satisfaction, that feeds his soul, that, that prompts his fulfillment. Jesus wants to not just offer that, but to invite people into himself. Chapter 6 is full of these proclamations and invitations. Look at verse 33. We went through this last week. He says, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven and gives life to the world. And in verse 40, he says, look to the Son, believe and have eternal life. But if you flip, if you're back there already, look at chapter 6, verse 42. Chapter 6, verse 42. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? They had him figured out. They already knew. Oh, we've got all we need to know. I've tried that before. I know where, exactly where that's coming from. I know all about it. I don't want it again. They've had it all figured out. But they didn't. But Jesus doesn't stop inviting and offering. Verse 48 of that chapter, he said, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven, the living bread that came down from heaven. A person may eat of this and not die. A person may eat of this bread and live forever. Verse 53, he switches it around. He turns it upside down. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And verse 57, he says, the one who feeds on me will live. This is the bread that came down from heaven. He who feeds on this bread will live forever. And then today's text, chapter 7, verse 37, that reads, substitute so graciously read for him. On the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Do we have verse 38 or did I just give you the 37? Because I wanted to point something out. Nope. Okay. Nope, that's 39. Okay. Ah, okay. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Some verses say, some scriptures say, um, him, there's a little bit of grammar weirdness going on. But we'll get to that. There are deep places within every human heart that are hungry, thirsty. Places within every one of us that are empty or we're scraping the bottom of the barrel trying to find something, some fulfillment, some promise, something that will help us feed 
the beast, feed the hunger that's, that's, that's within all of us. We're designed to need love. We're designed to, to need peace and joy and relationship and security. We're created for assurance and fulfillment and freedom. And we've all tried filling these places with all kinds of other stuff, with good things even, like family. Did you know that a family can be your idol? That you can worship the idol of family? Did you know that you can exalt your spouse or your kids above the Lord? And we, we try to fulfill this need in us with our busy schedule because we don't want time alone to think about what we don't, what we can't get. We, we try to fulfill our need with our children and their busy schedules. You ever wonder, is it, is it the kids that want to do all this stuff or is it the parents who want something to do with their kids all the time? I'm sorry if I stepped on any toes, but I'm thinking that we're trying to address a great need in our society by making our kids as busy as we possibly can make them with very good and productive and life-changing things. And we neglect our souls in doing so. We try to fill these empty places with work and with money and with sports and with food and drink and false intimacy and we fill these places even with religion and following rules and being good and going to all the right books and reading all the right books and going to all the right services. And every time we turn around in the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying, ask me for water. I am the nourishment. Take me in. Drink my blood. Come to me and drink. But why drink? What's it with water in this text? Why is Jesus saying this now? Well, to, do, to know that, we need to know where he is and why he's there. Right now he's in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Otherwise known as the Feast of there's Booths, the Feast of Booths. It's, it's around September or October. All the harvests have come in. All the grain, all the figs, all the olives, all the grapes, everything's been brought in and it is party time. It's time to celebrate the harvest. It's also time to celebrate and remember how God brought his people through the desert wanderings, the ancient people of Israel, and how God provided for them water in the desert bread from heaven and what they would do is that they would go on the top tops of their houses these flat roofed houses or they would go out in the fields and they would build like little shelters little stick shelters with palm fronds or something like that and they would live in those for the week like let's go camping kids let's build a shelter on the roof or let's go out in the backyard or let's do this building these little shelters all over the place that's very common in this festival And Jesus goes into the temple like a lot of other rabbis do. He gets his place and he starts teaching. And instead of saying things about God, he starts identifying himself as God. In his commentary, Mark Moore sheds some light on the significance of this feast. And he writes, For the last seven days, a priest has gone down to the pool of Siloam. Now, I don't have a map of Jerusalem or anything, but this is, a, this is a, a walk. He takes a golden pitcher 
And he dips the pitcher into the pool of Siloam and carries it up to the temple where he pours it out at the base of the altar, the burnt, where the burnt offerings are, are, are made. And it runs down into the base of the altar. And on, on, the sa- on the same day, also a big bold pitcher of wine is poured on the other side. And it drains down where all the blood drains down. It, this water and wine drains down into the, the foundation of the altar. And while the priest is pouring the water, he recites Isaiah 12, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Salvation. Now before we're all done, this is going to get really Old Testament geeky here. Okay, so if you've got your pen out, write some of this stuff down because I'm going to have a lot of stuff up here. This is very significant. Jesus doesn't just pick a metaphor out of thin air and say, well, I'm the water, come to me. He's very, very intentional about this. The whole point of the feast was to remember how God took care of the people of Israel as they wandered in the desert 40 years. What happened after they escaped Egypt? What happened after God delivered them from Egypt? They went into the desert, and after a couple days, they're thirsty. And they start arguing with Moses. Did you just lead us out here to die? Did you just lead all of our livestock out here so we can we can uh, be dehydrated and fall in the desert. What are you going to do about this, Moses? And Moses goes to the Lord. He he says, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me if you don't do something. We need water. And so in Exodus 17, it says, people quarrel with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And here's what the Lord said to Moses. Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take your hand in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Take note of that. God is going to stand on the rock and you will strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so. Here God is positioning himself, describing his physical presence as standing on the rock that Moses will strike and rivers of water, enough to feed probably two million people, start pouring out of a rock in the middle of the desert. This happens not once, but twice, one on either side of Sinai. So back in John, Jesus says to the woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. They had this conversation. Moses gave bread to to our fathers. They were hungry again. I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. He says, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on this will live forever. And Jesus stood and shouted to the crowd, anyone who is thirsty may come to me 
Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his, the, the New Living Translation says, heart. The word literally is belly. From the cavity. Sorry if that's a little gross. But there's rivers of living water coming out of the middle of him. People who study ancient Jewish practices agree that there were other Old Testament texts read during this feast. And one of them was in Ezekiel 47. If you're a Bible flipper, flip back to Ezekiel 47 because this is something pretty, pretty amazing to me. And I'm going to do something I probably have never done in all of these uh, sermons that you've listened to. I'm going to read uh, 12 verses from Ezekiel. (laughs) Ready? The man brought me back, this is Ezekiel talking, to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. This is a vision. Water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. The temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. Listen, altar. And then he brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. The water was flowing from the south side. All that direction, I'm not sure it's important for me right now. Let's imagine, let your mind picture what's going on. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then he led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. And he asked me, Son of man, do you see this? And he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the sea, where it empties into the sea. The water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There'll be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to Engliim. There will be places for spreading nets. En Gedi still, you can find it on a map today. It's south, way south of, of Israel, way south of the desert. It's on the, I think, the point of the Persian Gulf. It's salt water. But this vision says it's going to be full of fish and fresh. And trees will line the, the bank of this river Verse 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Where does this water come from? It comes from the base of the temple. What did Jesus say? Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. What did Jesus invite us to? 
What did he invite us to do? Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. The scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from within him. So where do the scriptures say this? Among others, Isaiah 58, 11 says, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Back in John 7, John explains to us what Jesus means by this in verse 39. I love it when the Bible explains the Bible. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So, let's take this and encapsulate it, shall we? When the people of Israel, way back with Moses, were thirsty, God stood on a rock and Moses struck the rock and rivers of water came from that rock to quench the thirst of the people. But they became thirsty again. And God fed all those people with bread from heaven. They called it what? Manna. But they became hungry again. And Isaiah saw a time where they would draw water from the wells of salvation. And Ezekiel saw an image of the temple where a river flowed so deep you could swim in it, where trees grew on both sides, bearing fruit each month, having leaves that were for the healing of the nations. I hope that triggers something in you. Like, I've heard that before, but it wasn't in Ezekiel. Jesus called himself a temple, a place where God's presence dwelt where heaven and earth met. And he called himself a place gushing with living water from him. Where else do we see in John's gospel where water flows from the belly of Jesus? John 19. It was the day of preparation and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath. So they asked Pilate to hasten the deaths by ordering their legs to be broken, their bodies be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately, what? Blood and water flowed. Now I've heard all kinds of medical terms about the water, swelling of the water around the sack of the heart and how that probably pierced that and the water came out. I don't think John had that in mind at all. I believe he's taking this water theme all the way through and life-giving water flows from a crucified Christ for us. It's still interesting to me that Jesus points to himself as the source of these rivers of living water that quench eternal thirst. And John gives explanation that says Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit who was to be given to us. Follow me here. To whom was the Spirit given? To believers, to Christians. 
Who is the temple that the Holy Spirit resides in? According to Paul, you are. If you're a Christ follower, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the place God makes his dwelling. So when God makes his home with us, when Jesus makes our heart a temple dwelling, a holy place where streams of living water pour out of him, where do they come out? They come out of us. A natural consequence of drinking from the rock that is Christ is that rivers of living water pour from us to the world. But that only happens if you go to Jesus to drink. That only happens when you go to him for nourishment. You can't give what you don't have. You can't share what you've not taken in. We only nourish people when we've been feeding on Jesus for life-giving food. So let me ask you again, is anyone thirsty? Go to Jesus. Is anyone hungry? Go to Jesus. Do any of you need real, satisfying rest? Go to Jesus. Where do you go to satisfy the desires of your heart? Where do you lean to feed your soul in the empty places? You think you've tried Jesus before and it just didn't work. You know, I've had that before. I've got that figured out and it it didn't work for me back then. Let me propose to you. You need to try this one more time. You need to try these baked beans because they're really better than what you remember them being. Your experience with Jesus maybe was experience in 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 a religion in a set of rules. Maybe your experience with Jesus was in a church that was toxic or a person that hurt you. That wasn't Jesus. That was something else. Something inadequate and insufficient. Maybe you tried a two-dimensional version of God called being a good person and that always leaves you weak and weary. You found it wasn't quite satisfying because no one No one can just eat once a week or once a month and expect to stay strong. In trying to quench the thirst in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, have you been drinking from every well you can find except Jesus? In trying to address all of the concerns that you have, have you been trying to feed yourself on every other front except Jesus? Have you been sampling life like it's some kind of smorgasbord? like it's some kind of buffet and you can just go from place to place and try this and try that and try this and none of it leaves it leaves you completely feeling stuffed and overwhelmed but you're still hungry and you don't know why try Jesus again for the first time when John finished his gospel Some time or another, he, he lived out his latter days and he began another book. Only this time, he's exiled on the island of Patmos, which was a Roman prison colony, just a bare rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And he writes, in, he writes the Revelation. He gets this vision. And John's Revelation is steeped 
in the Old Testament scriptures. See if you hear anything from Ezekiel in what I'm about to read. Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The Bible, I'm convinced over and over again, is a unified story that leads to Jesus. When Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are thirsty, come drink, he's talking about this this river, these streams of living water that you see back in Genesis that flowed from the Garden of Eden and you see at the end of the book flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb and it nourishes everything it touches. That same living water can flow through us to a dry world that tries every way possible to satisfy every longing that it has and it always ends up short. And they'll tell you, oh, I've tried Jesus before. Oh, I've tried church before. Oh, I've tried the Bible. I can't get anything. Just try it again. Here, let me help you. Let me get this cup for you and let me hold it for you so you can actually drink it. See, this is is better than what you thought. It really is. Even as a Christ follower, even as a Christian, you may think, well, I... I'm, I'm plateaued, I'm, I'm frustrated, my, my, my wheels are spinning, I can't get any traction. I, I've tried all this before and I just can't. Go to Jesus. Just want him. Don't want anything he gives you. Don't want any blessings. Don't ask for anything. Just go to him. Just rest in his presence. Let him fill you, and by filling you, you overflow with real life for other people. If you don't know what that is, if you've never experienced that firsthand, I I would just say there's a couple elders in this room over here when we're done that would love to sit and talk with you. I would love to sit and talk with you if you've not experienced Jesus that way. If Christianity for you has always just been, I follow a bunch of rules, I go to a certain place, I do a certain thing, and that's all, then we need to talk because there's a whole lot more to it. And there's life to be had, life that you've never maybe known before. So let me pray. We're going to, we're going to sing and we're going to gather around his table to remember this sacrifice that he made. God, thank you so much for, um, for your words, the, your life-giving words that point us to Jesus, that point us to, to him, to, to what he accomplished, for who he is, what he gives, and that we can find our ultimate purpose, our ultimate nourishment, the answer for every longing we've ever had found in him. 
Thank you that he is the living water, that he is the bread from heaven. That ultimately um, we need because we're very hungry and very dry. We're thankful for your faithfulness to show this to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can talk about Adam now because he's not here today, so I want to pick on him a little. When he was about eight, Deb was working in the kitchen, and he came in to stomping around complaining about Alex. After telling in detail what should be done about his brother, Deb just merely said, Adam, you ought to write a book about parenting. You're such an expert. <laughs> and Adam agreed that, that he should and that he would someday. So you fast forward about 15 years, and he's married, and now he's got kids of his own. And uh, he's exasperated about something one of his children's doing, and Deb kind of smiles and said, Dadam, how's that book working out for you? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, the book's great. The kids just aren't responding appropriately. <laughs> so, you know, so in this, I'm reminded about our relationship with God. He's our father, and we are his children. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. So God wrote us a book. And it tells of a pristine creation, man's disobedience, the history of a nation, rules for righteous living, but it all goes back to the saving grace through his son, Jesus Christ. For he knew that we could not, or if we would, we could not act appropriately. So as we come around this table to accept his provision for sin, through these emblems that represent his body and blood, we want to, we want to thank him and acknowledge the fact that we are truly his children and that we do have a right standing with God. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for for the provision that you made that we in our sin cannot act and cannot do anything that would be acceptable in your sight. But we accept this gift freely and through his blood and body and his sacrifice on the cross that we just truly thank you and look forward to uh, being with you for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.